Would you open your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you brought us to this place. Not because this, spa- this place is special or has any significance because of its building or its structure. But it is special because your people have gathered and you made us a promise that whenever we gather, when it's in the name of Jesus, that you gather with us. Jesus, you promised to be there with us. We've come to honor you, to glorify you, and we believe, Lord, that this is a special meeting between heaven and earth tonight, a time when you will meet with us over the pages of Scripture and upon the altars of our hearts. We want to do business with you tonight, Lord. We want to learn of you. Father, we want to learn not just that we might have knowledge stuffed up in our brains, but that your words, your principles might govern our lives, that we might be effective in this world, pleasing to you, and prepared for the next world, the world to come. So, Father, I pray for every one, every one of us who have gathered, that you would now captivate our attention. We sit and we wait upon you, Lord. Whether we're listening in this auditorium or live over the radio, we pray, Lord, that you would touch our hearts. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As you can see by giving a quick glance over this chapter, actually the last few chapters, including this chapter, if you have a red letter edition, it's almost all red, which means Jesus is doing most of the talking. These are stories that Jesus is giving, parables. Jesus was famous for teaching in stories. There were many other rabbis that came before and after Jesus who also taught in stories because, let's face it, we like stories. Now, any speaker knows that when you teach something or you give any kind of a seminar, that when you give information, there's sort of a cognitive overload that happens. It's just kind of like you just kind of get blitzed and you shut down. And uh, so often you want to give Stories, illustrations that kind of bring people back and amplify the truth. And you can, in a crowd, you can watch it happen. You can give a story, especially if it's a personal story, and people will look up like, oh, I'm kind of getting this here. And Jesus taught didactively and parabolically. That is, he taught simply truths, but so many times he taught truths in story form, parable form. My dad used to tell a lot of stories. When I was a kid, I didn't like him much. But the older he got, the older I got, actually before his death, I knew he didn't have much time left, and so I would ask him to tell me those stories again. Dad, tell me the story about your pet raccoon. I don't want to forget that one. I want to remember that one for years to come for my son. 
or having to work hard on the farm and walk, you know, 85 miles every day to school, all those stories. In 50 feet of snow, you've heard them before. And it's funny, the older he got, the snow got deeper and the distance got longer. I don't know why that is, but there came a point where I loved to hear them. Jesus is teaching in this chapter something that is very applicable to every person in this room. Because we all deal with it. He's going to speak about money. One of the parables, the first one, will be to his disciples. The second one will be a parable to the Pharisees because of their response in overhearing the first one. Two stories, two parables on wealth. Uh, It is a misunderstood parable. Let's read a few verses, then we'll go back. And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. In other words, you're fired. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. A very misunderstood parable. On the onset, it would seem like Jesus is commending a crook. And let's face it, the guy is an out-and-out crook. There's nothing meritorious about his action. Jesus is not saying his action is to be applauded, but he is giving a story for emphasis. Some people assume that whenever Jesus tells a story, that all of the characters of Jesus' story must be good guys. They must all wear white hats and have a big S on their cape for Superman. Well, if this guy had anything on his cape, the S stood for scoundrel. And I bet, you know, there were probably some people who were listening to some of Jesus' messages and probably thought, you know, I don't think that's right, Jesus giving such an example from the secular world. It would be sort of like quoting a television show or a movie or a Time magazine about an incident in secular world that's around us. There's some people who think, you shouldn't use those sources. Jesus did. He talked about a scoundrel who stole money from his master. 
a crook who is commended by his master. The guy in this story, this steward, was wise in a worldly sense. The business world, the world apart from Christ, let's put it that way, and people who are involved in worldly business ethics know that it's a dog-eat-dog competitive world. And in such a world, this steward, this manager, was wise in a very worldly sense. Understand something about Jesus' parables. Sometimes they were analogies of the same thing. That is, he wanted to teach a spiritual truth, so he would lay a physical truth from the physical world next to the spiritual truth because they were so much alike. At other times, Jesus would use it in contrast. It would not be synthetic. It would be antithetical, just the opposite. This is one of these stories. It is a truth by contrast. It is a parable by contrast. Luke is the only gospel writer, by the way, you may be interested in knowing, who records such parables of contrast. Luke is the one that talks about the unjust judge who would not give uh, of his goods uh, until that woman, woman just pestered him. Finally said, oh, give her what she wants. She's bugging me. Jesus was certainly not saying your heavenly father is like an unjust judge, but in contrast to such a one, your heavenly father is like this. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. So it is a parable by contrast, and so we have here a parable by contrast. You've got a guy who in the worldly sense of the word is very wise. In contrast to that, we are not of the world. We live on a higher plane than people in the world. However, let's look at his life, let's see it by contrast, and then let's compare and contrast the worldly example to your own spiritual life. You are not of this world. Jesus himself said, I have redeemed you out of the world. Galatians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus died for our sins, that he might redeem us from this present evil world. We're to be clearly different in our practices. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 said, and be not conformed to what? This world, but be transformed, completely changed and different by the renewing of your mind. And then in 1 John chapter 2, we're told to not love something. What is it? The world. Do not love the world. Isn't that interesting? Christians are to be the most loving group of people, but there's one thing Christians are not to love, and that's the world. You say, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, Jesus is speaking, uh, and, and the gospel writers are speaking of the worldly system. Certainly there's many different ways the world, that term is used in the scripture. Um, there's the created world. There's the environment the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We're to love that. We're to love God's creation. Certainly when it says do not love the world, it's not saying go outside and look at all that God has made and say, I hate you. And then refuse to enjoy what God has made. That would controvert the scripture. God has given us all things freely to enjoy. 
In another sense, the term world is used for the world of mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There it's speaking of a world filled with people. God loves the people of the world. And we're to love certainly them. So when John says, do not love the world, doesn't mean that we should hate people. The term that is used is cosmos, a worldly system, a system of thought controlled by sinful men, ultimately controlled by the devil himself, that imposes that system on everyone else, again, controlled by the devil, and it's opposed to God. And so you'll hear Christians sometimes say, he's acting pretty worldly. In other words, he's reflecting a value system that is not of God, but of sinful men. Love not the world. So Jesus takes a very worldly, sinful experience. It's a bad example to teach a good lesson, is what it is. So it's a lesson of contrast. A worldly person, but we live at a higher level. There's a rule, I think, that runs through this whole story, the first story. It's one of the cardinal rules of worldly businessmen. It's the law of self-preservation. You know what I'm talking about? At all costs, take care of who? Me. I will preserve myself. I will step on your toes. I will do whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder at anybody or anything's expense. It's the law of self-preservation. I think Satan understands human nature very well. Listen, he's been around for 6,000 years. He's observed people for a long time. I would say he's got a good handle on how we act and how we think. And though he's the father of all lies, the devil did pin humanity down and was very accurate when in the book of Job, he said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. He will do anything to preserve himself and his own interests. Of course, he underestimated the godliness of Job, who opted for a spiritual system rather than a worldly system, spiritual values rather than a worldly values. But by and large, that is humanity. Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. The law of self-preservation. Now, there's something else. I'm just kind of by way of introduction before we just mosey right into it. Verse 15, if you skip ahead, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is after the parable of contrast. After saying, here's worldly values. This guy was commended. We live to a higher value system than that. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. The worldly system is in opposition to God. In the world, a shady business deal is winked at. Somebody figures out a way to not pay income taxes, to get out of paying for a crime that he should pay for, and the world will pat him on the back. Hey, good job, man. You skunked him. You didn't get caught. Good for you. Oh, we commend you for that. In the courts, it seems that it's not the victim who has the rights, but the criminal who has the rights. 
part of the legal system in America says that you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. Did you know that in God's economy, it's exactly the opposite? You are declared guilty until you are declared innocent by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons the world has such a difficult time with the Bible and with the kingdom of God. It is exactly the opposite to their kingdom. We say, I'm a victim. I'm innocent. God says, you're all guilty. Until you come to Christ and admit your guilt and then by an act of Mercy and grace, God will justify you or declare you to be righteous. Then you'll have peace with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So people look at that and say, no, I have a real problem with that. I don't want a God who would declare me guilty. Well, the same God who declares all guilty will declare you innocent the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, let's get into the parable. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, that is, a manager. Stewards in the Bible were prevalent. Those who were rich had managers. They owned lots of stuff. They had to have somebody in charge of all the stuff. Abraham had a steward, did he not? His name was Eleazar of Damascus. He was sort of in charge not only of his monetary possessions, but his own son. He said, Eleazar, I'm trusting you with the ultimate I want you to go to Haran and find a wife for my son. God be with you. God will guide you. But I'm going to put his future in your hands, Eliezer. Go get him a wife. Go for it, man. Bring back a good one. I'm sure Isaac was back there going, Lord, please help him to bring back a good one. <laughs> we know from 1 Chronicles chapter 28 that David had many stewards over all that he possessed. This is sort of like a corporate president or vice president, senior vice president or president, depending on how the corporation is set up, or bank manager. And in this case, this guy has absconded with funds. He's been a ripoff and somebody ratted on him. And so the boss finds out. And the day of reckoning comes in verse 2. An audit is called and the guy is fired. Produce your receipts. We're going to audit you fully. I don't want to digress too much, but I am of the opinion that Christian organizations should be the cleanest financial organizations that there are. We call for a full audit at the church every single year. We want an independent firm to examine us from the outside, find out what we're doing wrong or doing right, and then make recommendations to our board of directors and say, this is wrong, you need to do this, this needs to be changed so that it is squeaky clean. I think it's a good testimony. I think it's a shabby testimony for Christians to do poor business. Okay, anyway, off the soapbox. <laughs> this man was brought to him, and this man was wasting his goods. By the way, this is not a one-time deal. It's a present active participle in the Greek language. The idea is that here is a guy who had the habit of embezzling. It was not a one-time deal. Over a course of years, he made it his practice to be wasting not his money, but somebody else's money, his master's. And now is judgment day. You know, the Bible says your sins will find you out. You can cover things up. But one day there will be a reckoning of all men and all women. Your sins will find you out. When I was 
about my son's age. And I was growing up, my brothers and I did clever little things in our backyard. One of those things is we loved to build underground forts. We'd dig holes, we'd spend days, we'd just dig huge holes in the ground. And my dad, because he was involved in building, would bring home sheets of plywood. So we'd put the plywood over the hole, frame it up under, underneath, so it would, it would be, you know, two by four or two by sixes. And then we'd leave just a little opening, and we'd put dirt over the top of this thing. So you couldn't tell. And we put a bush right at that hole. So it, you'd look out, you'd go, it's a field. You can't see anything. And it was our secret fort. And we used to take things from the house and hide them down there. and <laughs> Nobody knew. We could take stuff that was our parents, our older brothers, and nobody found it. One day, as a girl in the neighborhood was riding her horse through our backyard, or close to our backyard, I don't even know what property I was on, but she might have been in our backyard, but... She discovered our fort. And the weight of the horse, didn't break the horse's leg, threw the rider, but our sin was uncovered. As a hole was put through the plywood and all the dirt flew up in the air and everybody could look in the hole and see all the things we had ripped off and put inside that fort. We thought we were so clever. Nobody's going to find out, man. We've covered it up. Look, if you look out there, you can't tell the difference. Nobody knows there's a hole down there. So he was called and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, so for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, this is his thought process, this is his mind, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. Okay. Picture it this way. He's in his high rise there in Jerusalem, looking outside of his corporate office. Looks down at the street below and sees all of those workers working for minimum wage. And he's saying, oh man, I can't do that. I can't dig like these people. He'd become spoiled. He'd become softened. He says something that you have to wonder at. He says, I am ashamed to beg. Now, why is that odd? He says, I'm ashamed to beg, but he's not ashamed to steal. Isn't that interesting? That's a study in and of itself, I think. What makes a person embarrassed? What brings shame and embarrassment to a person? This guy should say, I'm so ashamed. I'm such a creepola. Man, I've ripped this guy off, and my sins have found me out. I'm ashamed. Because, oh. I'm so embarrassed I'd have to, like, beg or something. And so the guy puts on his worldly thinking cap. What can I do to further rip people off? How can I think of the future? This is the Eddie syndrome. Do you remember Eddie Haskell? Any of you? How many remember Eddie Haskell? Here, raise your hand. Okay. God bless you. And you, and you, and you. Now, everybody that remembers Eddie, let's come forward. No, I'm just kidding. Eddie Haskell was the character, the creep in Leave it to Beaver, who was always the hypocrite. 
He would say things behind people's back, but as soon as Mrs. Cleaver would come or Mr. Cleaver, he'd put on the nice guy. Oh, hello, Mrs. Cleaver. Well, I was just telling the beaver how wonderful he looked today. Of course, he was saying, beaver, you look so dweeby, but he was, he put on this show. So he's thinking, how can I connive, manipulate, and get my way out of this? What he is about to do is very worldly. He's commended in a worldly sense, though it is not a godly practice. Again, this world operates on different principles. I could prove it to you. If you went in for a job and you handed your resume to a boss, if you were to list as your strong points the attributes of the Sermon on the Mount, would you get a job? If he said, why should I hire you? You said, well, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I mourn a lot. I mourn much of the day. And I'm very meek and um, I'm a peacemaker. I'm persecuted for righteousness sake. He'd say, out of here. I want someone to say, I'm aggressive. I'll do whatever you want at whatever cost. The world doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. The world says, blessed are the pushers, the aggressive, the hard-boiled personalities. The ones that will steamroll over people's feelings to get ahead. So this guy's thinking, what can I do to get out of this? I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of the master's debtors to him. These debtors were probably renting from him. And when they would rent land in those days, they would have to pay not in money, but from the stuff they grew on the land that they were renting. So one guy was growing olives, and he had to pay oil. That's the fruit of the olives, the olive oil. He said, 100 measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down, and write 50. I'll cut your bill in half. The guy didn't know why he was doing it. He said, hey, what, this is great. Thank you. Thank you. 50 cents on the dollar. I like that. He said to another, how much do you owe? He said, I owe 100 measures of wheat. He had wheat fields out there he was growing. Okay, take your bill and write 80. Now, why 80 to one, 50 to the other? Except he probably thought, yeah, I can do better than this. I want to make a little profit for myself. So the master commended the unjust steward. Now, there were two effects by his strategy. Number one, this manager was making the debtor of the owner very happy, very grateful. They probably walked away going, man, you're such a nice guy. You've done me a favor. Listen, I'll remember this. I'll do you a favor sometime. Manager said, yeah, you do that. You, you, I'll remember this too. So they were grateful. Secondly, they were implicated. By this shenanigans, this was illegal, this was unlawful, this was all done in subterfuge, they were implicated because now they are accomplices to the crime. They agreed to do it, guilty by association. So he's dragging them into his sinful practices. See, this guy's really a creep, isn't he? Really a scoundrel. Now, the shock is verse 8. The master commended him because he dealt shrewdly. At first you think, man, that's an odd reaction. You think the guy would be livid that he'd want revenge, right? 
Revenge, again, is part of the natural world and something you and I have to fight, right? How do you feel when somebody pulls in front of you on the street? You know, it's funny. The road is like the area of life that I, you, you can watch people like change from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. You see these little people, you know, driving down the street real meekly, and somebody does something wrong or maybe like cuts a little bit in front of them and they just come unglued. I know this because I'm like this, you see. And sometimes I catch myself saying, so what? So they cut in front of me. But there's such a revenge when you cut somebody off on the road. I remember one time I was surfing in Huntington Beach, California. And I was out there and I was, I was catching a great wave. I was just dropping into it. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is perfect. Thank you, Lord. And this punk... He had his hair spiked up and a big tattoo on his arm. And he must have been, what, 15 or 16 years old. He came, jumped on his board, and grabbed me by the neck and threw me into the water. I came so close to beating the tar out of him. I was so livid. Why would anybody do that? I wanted to rip him limb from limb. And I tell you, I had to get out of the water for about three months just because my attitude needed an attitude check. That's the natural impulse. Revenge. But here the guy commends him. Now, he commends him. He does not excuse him. He fires the guy. Okay? He's out of there. But he commends him because he used worldly wisdom. And perhaps the owner himself used the same methods to get where he was. And he could relate. He thought, oh, I did the same thing. And here, you pulled a fast one on me. That's pretty good. You're pretty shrewd. Because he has dealt shrewdly for the sons, here's the application by Jesus Christ, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. This guy provided for his future using worldly sinful wisdom. And Jesus is saying, here's a worldly person. And these guys in the worldly realm are dealing more shrewdly than us Christians in the world of light. This guy used, in a sinful way, uh, this situation for his own future. This is a hook. You know what a hook is? It's like you say something, people go, huh? Why would you use that as an example? Uh, when a person would speak, well, here's a hook, for example. Let's say I begin a message and I say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cruelest hoax that has ever been foisted upon the world. Or, it is the most blessed fact of history. Now, you hear a preacher say the first part of that, what? He's a heretic. But then you hear the rest of the sentence, the or, oh, okay, I get it. Here Jesus uses a bad example, and the guys are like scratching their head. What do you mean they're, you're like commending this guy? No, the unjust owner was commending this unjust manager. And then in contrast, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that is money, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? 
Number one is the lesson of determination and commitment. It's as if Jesus is saying, look how committed people in the world are to their cause, serving their gods of self-interest and money. If they are that committed in a sinful way, how much more should we be committed in a righteous way? Look at the world. Look at how devoted they are to their gods. Look at the business executive who's only concerned about making a profit. Go to the airport sometime. Watch these guys getting on and off airplanes. I'm not condemning every businessman, obviously not, but just think of how devoted a secular, worldly businessman or woman is in making money. It's like, you know, you see it in their eyes as they walk. They've always got the Wall Street Journal. They're always on the phone making the deals. They're in the airplane. They call on the in-flight phone. They're doing the fax there. They get off. It's always, they're so devoted to it. Look at the athlete, how devoted the athlete is to winning. The discipline the athlete has to train, to eat right, to lay off the snicker bars and the cheesecakes, and to be devoted to his discipline or her discipline. Look how devoted the cultist is to spewing false doctrine from door to door. And then ask yourself, am I that devoted to the cause of Christ? Secondly is the lesson of resources. This man provided for his future. And Jesus used the word mammon or money. It's a Syriac, Aramaic translation of money, the God of money. And he says to Christians, now you make friends using unrighteous mammon. Or another translation, use money, turn it to your advantage. You know, money is neutral. Is money good? No. Is money bad? No. What is it? It's absolutely neutral. Depends on who uses it and for what purpose it's used for. It can be used in an unjust manner, as this man did, selfish, or it can be used in a good manner. And that's the idea here, is Jesus is getting them to think of the future and their resources. That's why verse 9, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, that is when you kick the bucket, that means you die. That's the skip translation, kick the bucket. They may receive you into everlasting habitations. When you use your resources, your money, to spread the gospel, the people that you touch through the gospel, through the money that you use, that you spend, will be your welcoming committee in heaven. You know, Paul the Apostle talked about money in Philippians 4th chapter. He said to the church, he said, you know, you are the only church that ever contributed financially to my missionary journeys in the way and in the extent that you did. Not that I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. And he used in the Greek a financial term that is on the credit side of the ledger. God is actually accrediting to your eternal account rewards when you use your finances to fund the work of God. You're laying up treasures in heaven by spending treasures on earth. Think of the future. There'll come a time when you die and all of the things that you own will be gone. Are you using what you have financially for eternal purposes? Imagine what it was, would be like. Imagine what it's going to be like 
Let's say you decide, you know, I'm going to really get behind Jay and Sonny and their mission to Africa or Larry and his mission to China or, or others in the fellowship. I'm going to give them of my finances. And so they go with the finances and they're able to open a church, open an orphanage, preach the gospel to many people who accept Christ. Think how grand it's going to be when in heaven you walk the streets and people approach you and they go, thank you so much. Because of you, I'm here. And you go, who are you? So I'm the guy that Jay preached to and Sonny preached to and Larry preached to. Kevin and Laura shared the gospel with and I responded to their message, but you contributed. You used your money for eternal things. That's one of the lessons Jesus is teaching here. Think eternally. Are you thinking eternally? You don't have to answer this question publicly or by a show of hands, but as you live throughout the day, is your mind on eternal things? Do you live in this world like a pilgrim? Like you're just passing through and your eyes are focused on another kingdom? Or is this it for you? Somebody once said that a man spends the first 20 years of his life listening to his mother wonder where he's going. He spends the next 40 years of his life listening to his wife asking him where he's been. And he spends one hour at his own funeral having everybody wondering where he's going. Where are you going? And when you get there, what will be there for you? Are you using your resources for his glory, for his kingdom? And Jesus talks in verse 11 and 12 about true riches as compared to the riches that are here on earth. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see the contrast now? Here's a guy who served mammon who was commended. We, as children of light, living to a higher standard, not of this world, should keep a loose touch with this world, use our finances for eternal values, eternal things. And it's a question of ownership now. That's really the bottom line. Who owns you? You cannot serve God and mammon. So ask yourself, am I determined and am I as committed to the cause of Christ as unbelievers are committed to serving their gods? Do I use my resources for eternal things? Do I care about souls? Do eternal souls really matter much to me that I'm really concerned about them as I live? And then the final question is, who owns my life? God owns it. If you're a believer, you don't even own your life. Paul said, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Literally, they turned up their noses at him. You see, a lot of these guys believed that prosperity was an indication of godliness. The richer you are is because you're a godly person. Of course, there's obvious problems with that, right? A lot of us know ungodly people who are rich. And we know godly people who are not rich. Yet they had this warped mentality, which, by the way, many churches have, thinking that godliness is a means to gain. Paul said, from such, withdraw yourself. And he said to them, 
You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Wow, what a sweeping statement that is. Think of all the things this world esteems as, ooh, that's awesome, ooh, that's important. Ooh, you're awesome because you are so wealthy and so successful. Oh, you've got so many degrees, you're so bright, ooh, wow. All of those things are an abomination to God. That is what we place value on. It's like, ah, who cares? The law and the prophets were until John, that is John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. How did Jesus view the Bible? Did he see, well, you know, the Bible's a good book to press flowers with. Why, everyone should have one for such a purpose as that. Or did he think, well, you know, it's good to take that college course. The Bible is literature. For that's all the Bible is, is a piece of literature. Jesus said, it is easier for heaven and earth to fail than for one jot or tittle. One little marking of the Hebrew text. The little asterisk or apostrophe that was used to fail from the law. Then verse 18 seems not to fit, but it's certainly in the context of the other teachings of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and he inserts it here because he's probably dealing with the hearts of the Pharisees. And this is probably on their hearts at that moment. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. If this was the only verse in all of the Scripture on divorce, then the Christian would be consigned to never being able to divorce for any reason. There is a principle. Whenever you interpret the Bible, in fact, when we teach hermeneutics, it's the fifth principle we always teach. It's the final one. The unity of Scripture. The unity of Scripture. You must take all of the teaching of Scripture as a whole and not just proof text, pull out one here, pull out one there, and forget the rest. You bring all of the Scriptures to bear on that point and you examine all of them. You examine them historically from the books of Moses and Genesis all the way to Revelation. And then you come up with a biblical consensus of a teaching. Jesus was asked about divorce by the Pharisees. In fact, let's just look at probably where this should end up in context. Turn back to Matthew chapter 19. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came to the regions of Judea beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You know what answer they wanted? They wanted him to go, Yeah. So they could go, Right on. And he answered and said to them, I love Jesus' answers. He takes them back to the Bible. Haven't you ever read the Bible? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh? 
So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, they were mistaken. They thought that it was an absolute command, and I'll get to that in just a moment, for a man to divorce his wife under a certain circumstance. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted, not commanded, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, we get lots of questions on this issue in particular, and because of that, I want to sort of unravel some threads. Jesus takes them back to the beginning God's intention for marriage. If you want to understand divorce, you've got to understand God's intention for marriage. Because divorce was not God's institution, it was man's institution. Marriage is God's institution, not man's. God instituted marriage. And from the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So divorce is simply a divine concession to a human weakness. That's the idea here, by permission. At the time of Jesus Christ, you know, in fact, I think that today's standards and the world in which Jesus operated were very, very similar in their outlook on marriage and divorce. A lot of times we think, well, you know, we're, we're a modern world. We think differently about lifetime, lifetime commitments and the value of life and abortion. We're a new and liberated society, not like the old times. Actually, you might be surprised. The Greeks, number one, had a low view of marriage. They had a low view of women. Women were owned as slaves. Socrates said, you should trust your wives with a lot, but not talk to them very much. I've just shattered some of your view of Socrates by that statement, didn't I? I mean, you thought, oh, Socrates, what a great thinker. Well, actually, he was like a chauvinist. The Greeks said every man should have a mistress for a companion, a concubine for sexual pleasure, and a wife to bear legitimate children. Wives should be kept in seclusion... They should never be allowed in public. A wife could never divorce under Greek law her husband, but a husband could divorce his wife for any reason at almost any time if he brought two witnesses with him. If a woman committed any kind of extramarital affair, she was dealt with severely. It was expected, on the other hand, for a man to have many affairs in the Greek culture. Then there were the Romans. And did you know for the first 500 years... There's no recorded divorces in Roman history. Then the Romans conquered the Greeks militarily, but not morally. And all of the moral ideas and all of the moral diseases crept into Roman life. 
And it got so bad that one Roman writer said women began numbering their years by the names of their husbands. It is an, a matter of Roman record that one woman had 28 husbands and numbered her years by 28 different names. Then we get to the Jews, and you think, oh, the Jews have got to have, they must have a high ideal of marriage. Well, sort of. They sort of did. They did by principle. In fact, the rabbis said there's seven people who will not go to heaven. Number one, a man who has no wife. Number two, a couple that has no children. They held to the sanctity of marriage in principle. The Talmud says that when a divorce occurs in Judaism, the very altar itself sheds tears. However, there was an odd scripture in their past that bugged some of the rabbis. They didn't know how to interpret it. It's Deuteronomy 24. Basically says if a husband finds some uncleanness in his wife, after he discovers that uncleanness, if he divorces her and she goes away and he marries another, that after that event, they cannot marry each other again. Otherwise, it will defile the land. It will be an abomination to God. Most of the Jews didn't even care about interpreting the whole thing. They cared about one little phrase. If a man finds some uncleanness in his wife. They thought, hmm, what could that be? Well, there were two rabbis, two schools of thought. One brilliant rabbi named Rabbi Shammai was a conservative rabbi. He said that meant any immoral uncleanness. Then there was Rabbi Hallel. He was more liberal. He said, well, that could mean if his wife spins around in public for joy without his permission. If the wife speaks publicly on the streets with her hair unbound to other men. Then Rabbi Akiba, some years later, took it a few steps further and said, well, it could mean anything if, if he finds a prettier woman than his wife. That's uncleanness in his wife and he can divorce her. By the time of Jesus Christ, there was no fault divorce among the Jews. Which was the most popular interpretation among men, do you figure? Yeah, it was that liberal one. What Hillel said and Akiba said, forget Shammai. And that's what the whole mindset that they came to Jesus with. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And so Jesus takes them back to the beginning. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That is the secret. Marriage is this. Two become one flesh. If we would understand that a couple, when they get married, enter into a spiritual union, that for you to just break that off is like cutting off a part of your body to get at a splinter. I got a little splinter in my leg. Whoom. There. Took care of that. I don't feel that splinter anymore. Dummy. The problem is the splinter. Deal with the splinter. Don't amputate the leg. You become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then did Moses command? They're referring to Deuteronomy 24. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted 
But from the beginning, it was not so. And here's the whole wrap-up teaching. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care what Rabbi Hillel says. I don't care what Shammai says. I don't care what any of these guys say. I'm telling you this. And I'm not saying anything different than Moses said. I'm giving you God's intention. If you divorce your wife for any reason except sexual immorality, you are causing her to commit adultery and you are an adulterer. Do you see what he was attacking? These guys were feeling so smug that they would divorce their wife and they weren't committing adultery. Jesus is saying, baloney, you are spreading adultery all over the place every time you commit the act of divorce for any reason except sexual immorality. You've got to understand something about divorce. It always involves adultery. Always. It always involves adultery. The only reason allowable for a Christian to divorce, and there is the, this allowable reason, is if your spouse has committed sexual immorality. So it involves adultery. If they commit it, then that divorce is allowable. If, on the other hand, you say, well, we're just not getting along. We're just going to divorce each other. We've tried, and the counselor and the therapist, and we can't figure it out, so we're just going to divorce. Div adultery is involved. Because when that spouse marries somebody else, it's adultery. When you marry somebody else, it's adultery. Jesus is saying divorce always somehow involves adultery. Now, there's, a, there's another option. It's the option hinted at, hinted at in Hosea, the third chapter, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7, and that is reconciliation. If in a marriage a spouse commits adultery, there is that option of divorce. You can do that. And it is a biblical option. It is the only reason allowable for a divorce. You can say, you know, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. I'm going to just cut this marriage and I'm going to divorce my spouse. And you could do that. But there's another option called reconciliation. And if at all possible, that is the option I would recommend. I would never counsel a person. Hey, just divorce them. I would counsel if they can. And Jesus said because of human sin, it does break the oneness bond so much that it is allowable for divorce. He understands that there is a depth of pain in that sin that makes that allowance. And yet, there can be forgiveness and reconciliation. And I've seen it. I've seen couples marred by this sin who have humbled themselves. And they've worked through it. And they've come out the other end stronger for it. So Jesus is attacking really the smugness of the Pharisees, declaring the only reason for divorce allowable is because of sexual immorality. So let's get back. We kind of went around the block to get next door, but we're next door. Now, there's a lot of scriptures on this, and we've done a lot of teaching on this, and I, there's still a lot of holes that we did not plug tonight, so if you've got questions about this, be happy to answer them afterwards. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple. Now, here's a parable against the Pharisees. Who, as it says in verse 14, loved money. 
He was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. The guy had it made. The guy had what people dream of, lifestyles of the rich and famous. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores who laid at his gate. And the Pharisees would have said, oh, this guy at the gate, this beggar, has been condemned by God. And it's obvious because of his poverty. And this rich man has been blessed by God. It's obvious because of his prosperity. Notice the twist in the story. He desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. The poor guy died. He had no funeral. They would bury people in Jerusalem by throwing them in a ditch. That's right. On the west side of Jerusalem ran a valley called Gehenna or Gehinom, which means Hell, that would be our translation. It's translated that way in the Bible. It was a place of perpetual burning. Garbage was thrown there. The bodies of the poor beggars were thrown there. Now, the rich guy, when he died, had a great funeral. Beautiful flowers, best casket. Probably the preacher, you know, just elevated him to heaven in his speech of how wonderful this guy was. But in the eternal realm, it was vastly different. He was an unbeliever, though he had a wonderful funeral. I do funerals for believers and unbelievers. I got to tell you, I don't like doing them for unbelievers. I do them because it's a chance to preach the gospel and to reach out to people who are needing comfort and sorrow. But I don't like them. You can't offer hope. So you must speak to the living, not about the dead. When it's a Christian, you can say, hey, this guy's graduated, man. He's in heaven. It's awesome. I can't say that for an unbeliever. It's desperate. And I've gone to some of the most beautiful funerals. They've spent thousands of dollars. But where is that person? Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who pass or from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rises from the dead. In this story, Jesus passes from this physical life into the life after death with no problem at all. He can just talk as easily about the next life as this life. Now, people try to do that today. There's all sorts of books. They're very famous. Shirley MacLaine has gotten many millions of copies sold. And is it Barbara Eady and some of the others? 
all about, you know, the light. I, I, here I was, and, and I was about to die, and I died for a few minutes, and I saw this beautiful white light and felt really warm and fuzzy, and I went down this tunnel, and then they come back and they say, you shouldn't fear death. Oh, listen, we're all going to a place of reward. It's a lie. It's deceitful. When man is left to his own imagination, he will fall prey to speculation. Thus, he needs revelation. He needs God to tell him. There's only one person who has died and come back to tell us about it, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the authority. He died. He rose from the dead. That's historically defensible. And he lives to tell us about it. And so for him to talk about this is easy. Talked about from one life to the next, from one side to the other. Uh, a couple things I want you to notice before we close here. Um, verse 26, there's a great gulf that is fixed. Once you die, it is fixed. This is the scripture. Please listen carefully. There is no purgatory. I grew up thinking there was. There is no such thing. It was invented several centuries after Christ existed by people who wanted to come up with an intermediate step. There is no such thing. It is nowhere to be found. After death, that's it. Kaput. No other chances. You've got a lot of chances before you die. People say, do you believe in the second chance? I believe in the bazillionth chance before you die. But after death, there's no chance. You can't pray a person into heaven. There's no purgatory. It's sealed. It does you no good to pray for people after they die. Secondly, there is the presence of consciousness and personality after death. There's the recognition in the afterlife of who Abraham is, of who this man is. There is the feeling consciously of pain and torment apart from God in hell. It's very real. Heaven is very real. Hell is very real. Jesus did not say, let me tell you a parable. This here is a story, not a parable. It's very true. Did you know that Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible? In fact, in more than all of them put together, Jesus spoke more about the punishment in hell. You know why? Because he knew what it was like. Being God, creating it for the devil and his angels, not for man. Seeing into that other life as plainly as into this life. He knew what it was all about. And so there's that conscious awareness after death. Now, this guy's begging. I beg you, therefore, that you would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, that I may testify to them, lest I also come to this place of torment. Do you see how differently after death? It's so clear now to this guy. Do you know that if people who had died, unbelievers, if they could come back to life, you know what they would be doing? Preaching the gospel. That's what they would be doing. If Karl Marx could come back from the dead, if John Lennon could come back from the dead, if Charles Darwin could come back from the dead, they'd be saying, I'm sorry, I lied to you. It's horrible. They would preach the gospel. They'd be the best preachers in this world. They've seen it. Please send somebody. What is his answer? How many people do you know say, well, if I saw a miracle, 
If somebody rose from the dead, I'd believe. That's what this guy says. Abraham says, they've got the Bible. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't listen even if somebody rose from the dead. They'd explain it away. They'd go, oh yes, it's just some psychological manifestation. But he said, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Imagine the shock. When the man had a little too much to drink, in his car, as it was barreling down the road, it swerved out of control, and he hit the sign of a Shell gas station, and he fell asleep, knocked him out. He woke up about 2 in the morning. He didn't realize what the jarring of the car against the sign had done. It had taken the S sign and shaken it loose. And so the man looked up, and he saw out of his windshield, hell, open 24 hours. He thought, oh, no. Hell is open 24 hours. Heaven is open 24 hours too. God never created hell for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. They will be cast into it. There's more to say on how all this works and what is Abraham's bosom, and I'm going to save it for next week. But People say, well, if somebody could, you know... Tell me what it's really like if somebody could come back from the dead. Jesus died and rose. Listen to him. He offers you eternal life. He is the only one who can speak with authority, and he's written a book about it too. And I think you should read Jesus Christ before you read Edie or Shirley MacLaine or anybody else. Because Jesus cares for your soul. Shirley MacLaine doesn't. Jesus died to secure you a place in heaven, to take you a wealth away from hell's torment. Nobody else has. And so tonight, perhaps you're thinking, you're kind of on that decision-making process. Are you thinking eternally? Or are you thinking just temporally? Are you like that guy in the first story who was only thinking about, I'm going to worry about my fleshly life and make lots of friends with these guys so that you know, I can get a favor later on. How about thinking eternally and letting your life be spent for God's purposes and God's glory, your money for God's purposes and God's glory? I tell you what, it's a blast to serve the Lord. It's an adventure. When you surrender your life to God, you don't know what he's going to do around the next corner, the next turn. Maybe tonight you're without Christ. Or maybe you can think back to a time when Jesus was close to you. When he was on your mind, the waking moments of the day. But time passed. Your heart became hardened and cold to Jesus Christ. It became a thing to do, church. And maybe tonight, God is wanting to rescue you and bring you to him. It is very important that when you are given an opportunity to come to Christ, you seize that moment. I've heard of too many people 
putting it off, and then dying before they had another chance. I'm not saying that to scare you. That's just the facts. You don't know when you're going to go. I don't know when I'm going to go. This might be my last night on earth. Tell you what, if it is, (laughs) don't pray that I come back. I'll haunt you forever if you do. Because I'm going to be in God's presence in heaven. And I'll tell you, I am grateful that Jesus Christ paid for my sins. And that I can stand before you or sit before you with full assurance and say, I know where I'm going. I know I'm going to be in his presence. It's not arrogance. That's just truth. He provided that way. If you can't be assured of that, then tonight is the night to surrender your life to him. Let's pray. And as you pray and as you think about your life, I'm going to ask some of you to respond on that choice tonight. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have given us truth, revelation, that can overshadow our speculation about what's going to happen. So many people imagine and write books about what they've speculated on, and other people come and pat them on the back for that and give them awards. All the while, so many people leave behind and disregard the one who died and rose from the dead. And because of that, offers life, eternal life, to those who ask him. Lord Jesus, we remember by reading the scriptures that you called men and women to yourself. You told them to leave their nets. You told them to make a crucial decision to make Jesus Christ their Lord. And you've been doing that ever since. And we believe that tonight you want to do the same thing in our midst. There are people here that you love and they need to experience your love and your forgiveness. They need a a new start, a second chance, or a third chance, or whatever. Lord, I pray that everyone who senses the need to come to Jesus Christ, either for the first time or after a time of being backslidden, would make this their appointment with you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name.